Hello and welcome to Bible 101. Today we're going to talk more about the arm of God, the right hand of God. Isaiah 53, 1 and 2 is my text. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, verse 2, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see, shall see him, there is no beauty that we shall uh, that we should desire him. Now, if you go on to read, he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, with his stripes were healed. So if I was to ask you, what is this text talking about? You would have to say Jesus Christ, obviously. Well, verse 1 uh, tells us something that a lot of people miss. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Verse 2 says, for he. I want to express to you that the he in verse 2 is the arm of the Lord in verse 1. You may say, well, you're going to have to prove that. Okay, I'll prove it. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 5. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. God speaking. So, what is the name Jesus? Obviously, Yeshua. It means Jehovah salvation, or Jehovah has become salvation. That's where it comes from when you see it in the Hebrew text, the word salvation. So notice again what he says. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. We're going to come back to this later. So let's begin to look at all the uh, texts, or not all of them, excuse me, but some of the texts that talk about Jesus sitting or standing at the right hand of God. Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. Jesus speaking. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Acts two thirty-three. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. We're going to come back to this and actually spend a lot of time on it. Hebrews 1 and 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. If you have questions on that, go to our roundtable discussion on doctrine. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm going to prove to you that the right hand means power, it means favor, it means pleasure, it means the works of God. Psalm 16 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17 and 7. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest, by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. So we see here he saves by his right hand. We saw in Psalm 16:11 at his right hand there's pleasures forevermore. Exodus 15 and 6, thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. So we see here that the right hand of the Lord is glorious in power. It's a place of power. So we've seen already that it's the place where there's pleasure forevermore. We see uh, in Psalm 17 and 7 that God saves by his right hand. We see in Exodus 15 and 6 that his right hand is glorious in power. With his right hand, he dashes the enemy in pieces. Now let's look at Psalm 18:35. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation at thy 
right and thy right hand hath holden me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. So with his right hand, he holds up the righteous. Psalm 48 and 10. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. So we see it's the place of power. It's the place of pleasure. Uh, and now we also see that it's the place of righteousness. Psalm 74, 10 and 11. O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? We're going to come back to this in a minute, but watch verse 11. Why withdrawest thou thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. So it's a signal of power, and it's also an extension of oneself. I've referred to this before. I come back to it now. Genesis 35 and 18. And it came to pass as her soul was departing, talking about Rachel, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. But his father, or Jacob, called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Today, if you talk about somebody being the son of your right hand, you're talking about my extension. Uh, this is my right hand boy is what he's saying. In other words, if I was to say somebody's my right hand man, I'm saying they're an extension of me. Perhaps they do things for me that I'm not able to do myself, that I don't have the time or the ability to do. Jesus is the extension of God. This is how God shed blood and reconciled the world unto himself. Acts 20 and 28 tells us the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. How can God shed blood? God's a spirit. John 4, 24. He hath not flesh and bones. Uh, that's in the book of Luke. You can read that. And so, uh, very clearly, God could not shed blood as a spirit. But 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much, uh, excuse me, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Okay, now watch this. So when Jesus died on the cross, he shed his blood, which is how we're reconciled to God. When he completed this redemptive work, he is now once again in the, in the bosom of God. Okay, let's return to Psalm 74 and 11. This is what the Lord showed me today. When he showed it to me, I got so excited because I've never heard this preached before. Psalm 74 and 11. The psalmist pleaded with God, and he said this, Why withdrawest thou thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. What he's saying is, God, I need you to do a work, and I understand you do a work by your right hand. Please, God, you've got your right hand in your bosom. Pluck it out of your bosom. Now, let me ask you a question. Where is Jesus at now? John 1.18 No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom 
of the Father. He hath declared him. You're going to have to pardon me for getting excited about this. Let's return to Psalm 74, 11. I want to make sure you get this. Why withdrawest thou thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. God, you've got your right hand in your bosom. Pluck it out. Well, God did just that when he sent Jesus Christ to the cross. When Jesus came into the world, he reconciled us to God by his death by his blood and when he completed that work he ascended back into heaven and now he's in the bosom of the father he is that right hand of God he is that extension of God and now in his exalted state he sent the Holy Ghost in his name Acts 2 33 therefore being by the right hand of God exalted remember it's the place of exaltation it's the place of favor it's the place of power it's the place of pleasure uh, it's the place of righteousness and having received of the father the promise of the Holy Ghost he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear now Peter in context in Acts 2 is talking about the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and he's preaching to those Jews and he says now that Jesus is exalted uh, by the right hand of God now that he's sat down in the place of the right hand of God he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear the Holy Ghost now I want you to notice something in the in the Greek hagios pneuma meaning holy or blameless ghost pneuma which means spirit but also means breath it's the spirit of Christ John 20 22 Jesus when he had said this he breathed on them and saith unto them receive ye the Holy Ghost no the Holy Ghost is not a separate person he breathed on them it's the breath it's the spirit of Jesus Christ he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now let's back up Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So with the first breath, we were born the first time by the breath of God. And then Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John 3 and 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In John 3 and 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say it unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Man was born the first time by the breath of God. Now we are born again by the breath of Jesus. That's why he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. Now I've talked in past lessons. This was spoken in prophecy. They did not receive it at that moment. But I believe what happened is the breath of Jesus followed them up into that upper room. And that's why it came in like a mighty rushing 
when? Because he said in Acts 1, ye shall, future tense, receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. They had not yet received the Holy Ghost and they did not receive it until Acts chapter 2. But he spoke that in prophecy in John chapter 20. Now, the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8 and 9, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Oh, this is so powerful. Notice this to the person out there that says Jesus is not God. Notice what Paul is saying here. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He's already said the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of God. Now he says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ. So in the same verse, he refers to it as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. All right. Now, the, the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Christ. And it's also called the Spirit of the Father. Romans 6 and 4. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father... Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Romans 8.11. Watch this. So he said, Christ was raised up by the glory of the Father. Watch Romans 8.11. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. It's called the Spirit of Christ. It's also called the Spirit of the Father. But you only receive one Spirit. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, it says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Amen. The Bible tells us that there's one Spirit. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. We receive one Spirit. No, you didn't receive three persons when you received the Holy Ghost. You received the Spirit of Christ. You received the Spirit of the Father. It's one Spirit. Amen. Colossians 1.27 To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 4, 4-6 through 6, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, which is an intimate term. This is how we cry, Abba, Father. We have no relationship with Him uh, unless we can cry, Abba, Father. And you can only do that by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which is in you if you have received the Holy Ghost. Not a separate person, but the Spirit of Christ. Jesus had to be tested and overcome the cross so that he could give us the spirit of the overcomer. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken, Jesus speaking, unto you, that in me you have, might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Uh, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him. Amen. What does it mean to be at the right hand of God? That's the place of exaltation. That's the place of favor. 
that's the place uh, where uh, where you are exalted, where you're in favor with God, where there's pleasures forevermore. It says, uh, now he's uh, exalted, verse 9, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him. Why? Because he humbled himself. Because he submitted himself to the cross. Now that he's completed that work, watch this, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Amen. I feel the Holy Ghost as I'm talking here today. Let's go back to Matthew chapter number 28 and compare this text here. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 28. Many of you probably know where I'm going. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 28. And uh, I'm going to take the time to read this. Let's go back to verse number 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Remember, Jesus is about to speak to the eleven. Verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Compare this to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Remember, he's been obedient to death, even to the death of the cross, because of this. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now go back to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus speaking to the 11, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. But he had to first be obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. And now he's exalted at the right hand of God, that place of power, that place of pleasure, that place of favor. Then Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go ye therefore, or because I have all power, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of what name is highly exalted? What name is above every other name? At what name shall every knee bow and every tongue confess? It's at the name of Jesus, baptizing them in the name, that name that has all power of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, the name that's above every other name is the name of Jesus. That is the name of the Father. That is the name of the Son. And that is the name of the Holy Ghost. But notice, he could not pour out his Spirit until he had first completed his mission. John 16 and 7, Jesus speaking, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. If Jesus and the Holy Ghost are two separate persons, why did Jesus have to depart before the Comforter could come? Think about what I'm saying here today. No, they're not two separate persons, but Jesus had to first overcome. He had to first submit himself unto the cross in order to be exalted at the right hand of God. Now, let's read this John 1.18. He's now back in the bosom of the Father. 
No man has seen God in any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. That right hand is now back in. He's now back in that place of right hand, that power, favor. God's arm is now back in his bosom, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him, or he hath made him known. Acts 2.33, notice this, because now he's in that place of power and favor. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having... Now, now that he's back in that place of exaltation, says, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. Why could he not give us the Spirit until he died and rose? Hebrews 9, 12 through 17, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit... Notice what this is saying here. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For a, where a testament is, or where a will is, that word testament means will, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Verse 17, For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. You may say, well, I've got a lot of riches, but you don't have anything. Uh, uh, you, you might say, well, I've got a lot of riches because my dad, uh, I, I'm in my dad's will and he's a rich man. But really, you're not rich until he dies. It's As long as he lives, as long as he can sign his own name, as long as he lives, uh, you know, that testament is not in effect. But once he dies, it goes into effect. Here's the same thing. Jesus had to first die to bring this will uh, into fruition. And now we have received an inheritance because the testator has died. Okay, now he pours out his spirit upon all flesh. Acts 2.17 And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I, who says this? God says it. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Notice that God called the Holy Ghost His Spirit. It is also called the Spirit of Christ. Jesus is the extension of the Father, the right hand of God. If you have the Holy Ghost, you have the Father and the Son. 2 John 1 and 9, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Not separate persons, manifestations. The Father did the works, John 14, 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. That's what it means. Going back to Hebrews chapter number 9, uh, in verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot, 
to God. He couldn't do that if he wasn't God. But through the eternal spirit, he was able to offer himself without spot to God. Okay, so he says, back to John 5, 19, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, there also, uh, excuse me, these also doeth the Son likewise. I've said many times, God is a spirit, John 4, 24, He hath not flesh and bones. Uh, to say that God has a right hand is an anthropomorphism, basically trying to describe God with human characteristics. Okay, now, if that's not good enough for you, and if you don't believe me, maybe you'll take the word of a scholar. So this comes, uh, just to give you my resource here, this comes from the, uh, the uh, Archaeological Study Bible, and this is actually no longer in print. I think you can buy it a few places, but it's no longer in print. But I got this, and this, is, uh, this article is called The Right Hand in Ancient Thinking. I want you to listen real closely to what I'm about to say, and we're almost done with this lesson here. The hand was symbolic in the ancient world. It was believed that from it one either bestowed grace or pronounced punishment. In addition, the hand represented the authority of an individual, the instrument of carrying out a person's intentions. The right hand, in particular, was special for two reasons. First, the left hand was universally acknowledged to be the one used for sanitation purposes and, therefore, was less respected than its counterpart. Secondly, since most people were right-handed, the right hand was considered to have innately superior strength and capability. Because of its special physical status, the right hand was assigned important metaphorical significance, frequently expressing blessing, fellowship, or comfort. Certain acts of ritual cleansing, as well as the ordination of the Aaronic priesthood, involved the right hand or the right side. Uh, and and there's, there's a lot of scriptures referring to that, and I'm not going to get into it. The right hand was also used in taking vows in judicial matters since it was believed to represent the character, will, and actions of the individual taking the vow. In literature, it personified a king or deity's character and deeds, while in the Hebrew Bible, the right hand represented God's ultimate strength and provision for his people. To be seated at the right hand of a ruler or host meant occupying a place of high honor. The position itself was considered an indicator of the power and authority of the one holding it. Someone who sat at the king's right hand was, as in the modern English idiom, his right hand man, the one acting as the principal agent of the king's authority through whom he carried out his most important work. In addition, sitting at the right hand was a statement of fellowship and favor between the central figure and the individual so honored. Jesus Christ is depicted several times in the Bible as sitting at the right hand of God the Father for eternity. Psalm 110, 1, Acts 2, 33-35, 5:31, Romans 8, 34, Ephesians 1, 20, Colossians 3 and 1, Hebrews 1 and 3, verse 13, 8 and 1, 10, 12, 12 and 2, 1 Peter 3, 22. And I know I gave you a lot of references there very, very quickly, but uh, there's a whole lot of references to this. Okay, so with all of this in mind, I'm going to close this lesson this way. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 53. We've all agreed together that Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus. Let's read it one more time. Verse 1, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Can I submit to you it's revealed to us today? For he, the arm of the Lord, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. 
He hath no form nor comeliness, and we sh when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is the arm of the Lord, is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Can I tell you, Jesus Christ is the extension of God. He is the right hand of God. He is the right arm of God. Where is he at? Exalted in that place of power and favor. That's why when John saw him, he was in his glorified state. No, he's not in the weakness of the flesh anymore, but he's in that glorified state because he had to first be tested. Then verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Thank God for that. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement was of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Thank God for the right arm, the right hand of God.